Welcome to You Masterclass, the film podcast written and produced by students in the film studies program at UMass Amherst. I'm Jackie Celestino. And I'm Emily Coe. Welcome to our last guest episode of the summer. Yes, today we are featuring Ben Sepinuk's podcast episode on the Best Picture nominees of the 2021 Academy Awards. If you listen to our TA episode, which if you haven't, please go check it out, you'll remember that Ben is one of the TAs for the Latin America Cinema Course. He was also taking the film podcasting class, which is where he produced this episode. We'll let Ben introduce it. Hi, my name is Ben. I just graduated from UMass a couple weeks ago with a degree in film studies, and this is an episode of a podcast that I did talking about the Oscars. Uh, the original idea behind this project was for Professor Pope's podcasting class. I wanted to kind of fill up a lot of the time I was spending alone in my room during COVID uh, by just watching some of the film franchises and like the big Hollywood blockbusters that I had never seen before, these long series that you just kind of your Fast and Furiouses and your Transformers and trying to apply a, an analytical kind of academic lens to them. It was a way to just kind of goof around and, and watch some easy movies, I guess, in a sense. But I, I also thought it was a fun approach to take to what we would consider more mainstream cinema. Um, but this episode in particular, I changed things up a little bit because rather than focusing on a series, it's all the movies that were nominated for Best Picture this year. I recorded it prior to the awards. Obviously, it's a little bit different now that we know how that all went, but... I think the aspect of it that might hold up is kind of the same thing that made the whole project interesting to me in the first place, which is this idea of looking at the industry that is Hollywood and how the formal choices that go into the movies that become popular or in this case that receive award recognition speak to larger cultural trends and things that um, the kind of corporate side of the culture may be trying to recognize on a social level, I guess, because I think really movies are an art form, but the movie industry is an instrument of capitalism. And looking at how those things intersect uh, is really interesting to me. But also, there were some really great movies this year, this last couple years, I guess, that I really enjoyed, and some other ones that I think are receiving a lot of attention that I I had some kind of significant problems with. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope you enjoy this. I think it was kind of an interesting topic to delve into and um, hopefully you think so as well. So thanks. Hi, welcome to Franchise Feed, the show where the Harry Potter series is one 20 hour movie. Now, normally on this podcast, I binge watch film franchises and then go through them one by one, but today is going to be something a little bit different. A bunch of movies that have nothing to do with each other, except for the fact that they are all up for the same award, because the Oscars are coming up, so we're going to be running through the eight Best Picture nominees, going over things that they might have in common that might be different, and just talking about the Oscars in general and what they might be looking for in terms of what should win. I should also mention at this point that there's obviously going to be spoilers for all the movies that are nominated. I will put timestamps in the description so you can skip past anything you might not have seen. I'm not expecting it to be too plot-focused, but just a heads up that I am not going to be worried about that. So 
you have your warning. So I think I should probably just jump right into this. Uh, we're going to go in alphabetical order, which is the order that they are listed on on the Oscars website. So we are starting with The Father. Do you know, I give everything I own for a glass of whiskey. Don't you agree? Well, I don't own all that much, so... <laughs> oh, really? What do you do for a living? Um, I look after other people. Other people? Hmm. Yeah, my job is to help people who need help. <laughs> oh. Sounds like one of those girls you're always trying to dump off a maid here. And this honestly feels like a great place to start because I think this is exactly the type of movie that the Academy loves to nominate a lot of the time. Uh, it's starring two people who have already won Oscars for acting and they get a lot of dialogue to kind of express their emotional range and show off. But I'll get more into performance in a minute. I wanted to first talk about this is written and directed by Florian Zeller adapting his own play. And a lot of this movie very much feels like a play, which is another thing that I think Hollywood really loves in the, in the sense that it feels very confined. It takes place in only a few locations. There's a limited number of characters. And as I said, it's very dialogue heavy. But a lot of the time it feels like those adaptations suffer when translated to film because they're not utilizing the medium to its fullest extent. I do not think that was the case here. I think Zeller did a really good job translating this to the cinematic medium and, and using everything to its full extent and creating this effect that really puts you in the headspace of Anthony Hopkins' character, which I should give a little bit of background. This movie is about a man suffering from dementia, played by Anthony Hopkins, and his daughter, who is caring for him, who is played by Olivia Colman. They're both fantastic. What this does really exceptionally is play with chronology and subjectivity and give you things as Anthony Hopkins sees them where we don't it's it's sort of an unreliable narrator type deal but done in a way where we're constantly questioning what's really going on we're constantly having the rug pulled out from under us he will walk from one room to another room and the scenery will have changed the characters will have been replaced and it really prevents you from ever having a real solid sense of of where we are in time or where we are in the narrative and it kind of attempts to put you in this position of the person with dementia in a way that could be seen I guess as kind of gimmicky and, and attempting to play with what is a very serious illness as a sort of just cinematic device but I think it's done with a lot of empathy and in a way that is really frightening and sort of plays out like a psychological thriller in a lot of ways. I also think it's carried so heavily by Anthony Hopkins' performance. He is outstanding in this. He's always been one of my favorite actors, but in this in particular, he is so convincing that even though he's someone who I'm so familiar with, there were points where I actually forgot watching the movie that he doesn't have dementia. I <laughs> at one point was thinking to myself, man, it's it's almost a little uh, exploitative that they're using this actor with dementia for this. And then I was like, oh no, he he doesn't have, like he's just that good of an actor. So it's a it's a truly heartbreaking performance. Only Anthony Hopkins could pull off lines like "I want my mommy" while while sobbing in a way that really like makes you it, it feels so genuine and, and touching and I think this movie is is speaking to something that not only is a real issue that a lot of people face both themselves and what Anne Olivia Coleman's character has to go through of caring for for her an aging parent but it also kind of speaks to the time that we're in in a lot of ways I think this sense of this loss of control 
even a loss of control due to a health crisis and his inability to kind of have a strong grasp over his own life and the way time just kind of passes by without any real sense of control is something that evokes a particularly strong emotional reaction right now because a lot of people are experiencing that to some degree. I think it's a really beautifully done film. It's only like 97 minutes long and I would recommend that everybody see this one. I don't know whether it is something that will necessarily take home a ton of awards. I think there is definitely the potential for the actors. I would say, as I mentioned, I think Anthony Hopkins in particular would absolutely be deserving to take something home, but I think this is one that is going to age really well, and I think that it represents the troubles of aging and particularly this type of mental deterioration in a way that I haven't seen before on a film and is able to utilize its subjectivity in a way that is both creative and really fulfilling as as an audience member in the most heartbreaking way possible. There are points where dialogue is repeated and kind of looped back as Anthony Hopkins interacts with different characters. There are characters whose actors are replaced at, at different times, and none of it ever feels like Zeller is just trying to trick you or mess with you. It all feels real and grounded in this experience of this character. And I really can't recommend this movie enough. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think a lot of these nominees had a strong emotional impact on me, but I think this one perhaps did the best job of doing that through cinematic invention itself rather than just events that happen to characters. But with that in mind, I want to move on to the film that might be the most emotionally devastating of all these nominees, and partially because of its basis in reality, which is Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah. Let me ask y'all something. If this building caught fire right now, what would y'all worry about, huh? Water and escape. If somebody would ask you, what's your culture during this fire, brother? Water. That's my culture. Well, how about your politics? Water and escape. Well, guess what? America's on fire right now. And until that fire's extinguished, don't nothing else mean a goddamn thing. This movie takes place during the Civil Rights Movement and is primarily focused on events surrounding Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and the events that eventually led to his killing. It is told, though, primarily sort of through the perspective of this character, Bill O'Neill, who is, of course, also based on a real person, played by Lakeith Stanfield, who is this sort of small-time criminal who becomes an FBI informant due to, essentially, extortion, and the role that he plays in infiltrating the Black Panthers and providing the FBI with information... J. Edgar Hoover is sort of the the ultimate big bad antagonist kind of pulling the strings behind all this stuff, which I think is actually really interesting if you, if you look at kind of the history of how Hoover has been portrayed in Hollywood movies over the last couple decades. And, you know, he had his own biopic with Leonardo DiCaprio, but now he's got Martin Sheen and all this makeup depicting him as this kind of almost cartoonish villain, which, I mean, it's all stuff that he actually did. But the real impressive thing about this movie is the way that it takes 
this very specific moment from American history, one that unfortunately is is continues to be incredibly culturally relevant. I keep seeing people talking about how movies like this that deal with issues of of social equality and social justice and and how they pertain to the Black Lives Matter movement are very timely for right now and I think unfortunately I kind of have to disagree and just say this is relevant to any time there hasn't been any point in American history where this this hasn't been an incredibly relevant issue but I will say that there had there has been more of a trend in the last few years of movies that kind of highlight these these moments and these sort of issues getting more attention and I think that's a really good thing we're getting to see more movies that are sort of produced and directed and and written by people of color and and people who represent these groups that are in need of more equity and equality so i i think that's a really good thing and i think we'll we'll touch more on representation as this show goes on but this particular story is so devastating i i think this movie will really encourage more people to research the story of fred hampton and and the influence that he's had on on the country and, and and sort of what his his story was but he is not the only black leader to be kind of gunned down by by law enforcement not by accident he was hunted down at the age of 21 which is completely vile but he's played by Daniel Kaluuya in this who is such a phenomenal actor i think this might be the performance of of the year it certainly deserves to take home best supporting actor i think the way that he is able to capture the voice and the mannerisms of the real fred hampton if you if you go back and watch his speeches but simultaneously create this fully crafted three-dimensional character who is creation of of the movie and and play both sides of that and give so much depth to this man in a way that I, I hope does him justice. I think it does from, from where I'm sitting. And it's just a really remarkable, sympathetic performance of this, this man and kind of the public persona that he had to put on and the strength of character that it took for him and the doubts that he had and who he really was behind the scenes. And that's sort of juxtaposed by Lakeith Stanfield's character, who is, it's in all respects, kind of a much more reserved performance. Definitely less showy but I, I've been seeing it get just as much praise because the nuance with which he has to portray the inner conflict going on in this man Bill O'Neill it's really difficult to pull off and I think he does it exceptionally well the curious thing about this is that if we're looking at awards nominations uh and again like I'm not someone who generally places a lot of value on awards particularly when it comes to art and comparing art but I do think the Academy Awards are often reflective of whatever issues or narratives Hollywood feels like need to be acknowledged at any given time. And right now, obviously, representation is a big issue. We had the whole Oscars So White campaign a few years ago. There's been issues of female directors arguably not receiving nominations that they deserved. So it's interesting to me that Lakeith Stanfield is nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this movie because, to me, he's unquestionably the star of this movie the entire narrative hinges around him he's in almost every scene he gets the most screen time out of anybody so i i don't really understand the logic behind that decision and 
it's a shame because I feel like it might result in in votes getting split between him and Kaluuya and the award going to to somebody else entirely, which I do think this best best supporting actor award should go to Kaluuya. But in terms of in terms of the film itself, though, the movie looks absolutely gorgeous. The cinematographer is is Sean Bobbitt. I I think he shot this on Alexa and Alexa Mini cameras, and the photography is not very showy or or I don't think designed to provide any sort of egregious visual aesthetic but everything looks very clean very sleek and really emphasizes the characters in a way that I think is appropriate for the storytelling going on here and again like this is easily one of the strongest movies of the year I think 100% it deserves this nomination I think in terms of all around storytelling it's probably the most impressive overall of these nominees for me i think if i had to pick one that i would hope would win it would be this movie the way it manages to tell what is unfortunately going to be a a political story but through the interior lives of these characters and just personalizes it in a way for people that i think says a lot about the nature of, of leadership but also the really awful positions that that black people are are put into where the idea that advocating for your own equal treatment could somehow be a political stance is just so unbelievable to me and i think this movie does a really phenomenal job representing that and representing the different kind of outlooks that people can have or the different positions that people can be forced into and one of the biggest questions for me walking away from this was how sympathetic is Bill O'Neill and how sympathetic does the movie want him to be and I think it tells the story in a way where his actions are sort of left to speak for themselves I don't think it really does anything to excuse what he did but I also felt like it was free from judgment and I think that was a smart decision and really lets Lakeith's performance shine. I would recommend this movie to just about anybody. I think it's really exceptional. And as I said, I'm pulling for this to win and I think it will win. But this is a good point to mention that the Oscars does have kind of a history of taking these really well-crafted, nuanced portraits of racial issues, particularly those created by black directors and kind of putting them aside in favor of these much more easily digestible narratives i'm thinking in particular of the year that spike lee's do the right thing lost best picture to driving miss daisy and then years later he he lost again with black klansman to green book which is essentially the same movie hollywood has not demonstrated so far really an ability to look beyond the most basic level of empathy for racial issues and still kind of tends to lean on the white savior trope a lot of the time but i'm hoping that especially given the time that this is coming out at i think this movie will get the recognition it deserves and that will lead to more people seeing it uh because that's really where i think a lot of the value from these awards comes from is just the exposure that it creates and for movies like this that I think are culturally important, getting them in front of more more viewers, which is also something that I think is being achieved 
in a lot of different ways now through streaming platforms. I know Judas and the Black Messiah was temporarily available on HBO Max and sort of the theatrical experience in particular this year due to COVID is is being somewhat put to the side in favor of this home viewing experience, which was also the case with this next movie, David Fincher's Mank. I may be a loose cannon, but you, my friend, are an outsider. They're exasperated by me, and I've earned it, but you, a self-anointed savior hyphenate, they're just waiting to loathe you. Remind me never again to work with a washed-up alcoholic. Duly noted. Nelson Algren, please copy. All right. No doubt you'll get your credit, but ask yourself, who's producing this picture, directing it, starring in it? That's just what we need when Susan Leaf came. An act of purging violence. Maybe. Like the last movie, Mank is a period piece. It is based on real events and real characters, real people, I should say. Unlike Judas and the Black Messiah, it is surrounding issues that really only matter to a very small group of people. This tells the story of the writing of Citizen Kane by screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, working with Orson Welles. And I have to say that as someone who has historically been a big fan of David Fincher and someone who recently revisited Citizen Kane and liked it a lot more than I remembered liking it, I think it's, you know, I don't, I don't need to praise Citizen Kane. I think people are aware of how brilliant that film is. I was pretty disappointed in this movie. Fincher directed this from a screenplay written by his father, which obviously I think it was a very personal project for him. His his father recently passed, and this movie might sort of be a love letter to both his father and to the movies, which is another thing that we keep coming back to, these things that Hollywood and particularly the Academy Awards love to recognize. Movies about movies, and particularly movies in the classic era of Hollywood, are things that Hollywood loves. They 100% nominated this, I think, in part due to that. But we should dig into some of the, the technical aspects of this movie. But first, as a little bit of background, this has to do with an essay that the film critic Pauline Kael wrote, essentially condemning Orson Welles and suggesting that he had nothing to do with the writing of Citizen Kane, that it was entirely the efforts of Herman Mankiewicz, and that Orson Welles then retroactively attempted to remove Mankiewicz's name from the script to take credit for himself when he had actually written none of it. The interesting thing is that that essay was was pretty much entirely debunked. There's a ton of evidence that suggests that Welles was very involved in the writing process, as was Mankiewicz, and that Pauline Kael even knew this at the time that she published the essay, uh, but chose to do it anyway as sort of a hit job on Orson Welles. Fincher has claimed that he doesn't really care about who deserves credit, that as far as he was concerned, the only aspect of that that mattered was that only one of them was attempting to remove the other one's name, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it. But as far as that claim goes, it does seem like the movie itself is very concerned with that side of things and does spend a lot of time dealing with this relationship between Mankiewicz and Wells 
and the manner in which Mankiewicz decides that this is the work he's the proudest of and that he wants to have credit for it. And it's definitely saying something about, you know, legacy and the artistic process. Mankiewicz is a fairly interesting character, albeit one that we have seen before in various forms, I think. He's played here by Gary Oldman, who I... Will say, I think this was a good performance by Gary Oldman, but I was not blown away by it as I have by him in the past on certain instances. He was nominated for this, and and I'm I'm not going to say it wasn't deserved. I think he is an exceptional actor, but it's not a performance that I would put at the top of my list of of the nominees this year. And that's I guess that's similar to how I feel about the movie itself. It's strange because in a lot of ways, Citizen Kane. Is, is one of the best screenplays ever written. It's one of the best movies ever made. And it's essentially just a very long character study. Mank does a similar thing where we are spending a lot of time just kind of exploring this character of Herman Mankiewicz and his, his idiosyncrasies and the things that made him the way he is and his relationships with the people around him. But most of those people around him are only significant in terms of his perception of them or or the way that they affect his life so it so in many ways it it parallels the movie that it's attempting to honor here but done in a way where i just really didn't care too much about this film or or the things that went on in this film i think it absolutely i can see why it works for some people but it just really failed to evoke any sort of emotion in me and a lot of it felt pretty dull I also think it's a little bit ironic that a screenplay about a screenwriter contains so much expository dialogue and so many moments that felt redundant to me. I think the point that Mink is an alcoholic is driven home to such an extent and with so little subtlety that it's almost comical at times. I will say it looks gorgeous in black and white. And there are a couple standout performances here, I think, and Amanda Seyfried is totally captivating, probably as good as I've ever seen her in anything, and Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate whom the character of Charles Foster Kane is based in the Citizen Kane screenplay. He has a very limited amount of screen time in this, but he really does the most with it and is a really fascinating figure that... I'm hesitant to say I wish was explored more because I think that actually limiting the amount of time he was on screen did make him all the more interesting, but it does sort of feel like at times like Mank is as much as the movie is trying to convince you the most interesting person in the room really isn't and his kind of outlandishness and his inability to keep quiet about his political views makes for some fun scenes, but it is sort of that kind of intellectual fantasy that a lot of movies play out where we just have this protagonist who's smarter than everybody around them and is just kind of running conversational circles around them and it makes for some kind of candy dialogue that is fun for a moment but doesn't really say anything uh, as far as I'm concerned. I, I do think, though, I am sounding a little bit overcritical of this movie. I did enjoy it to some degree. I just think in the grand scheme of Fincher's work, this is probably his most forgettable movie besides maybe Alien 3. And I don't think it is nearly on the same caliber as movies like The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, or Sound of Metal, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it's, it is 
I, I can I can see the, what the qualities were that were appealing to the Academy. And again, like to a lesser extent, like we saw in The Father with this sort of claustrophobic kind of sense of confinement and sort of loss of control, we and we even see a little bit in Judas and the Black Messiah in scenes where Fred Hampton is in jail. We see that here again with Mank sort of confined to a bed or to this one house that he's being put up in with injuries and the work that he does on the screenplay during that time. I think if there is sort of one common thread through these otherwise kind of disparate movies tonally so far, it is that sort of idea that we can be trapped and not always have the same kind of agency over our own conditions that we want to have and the fear and frustration that comes with that and the the different ways that different people will respond to that and that kind of lack of agency takes on a pretty different form in the next movie on the list which is a movie that i really really enjoyed and that is minari david 우리가 그 스튜피드 스틱 썼어? 어떻게 찾았어? 머리를 썼지. <웃음> 머리를 썼지. 하... 와우! 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 또! 또! 와우! 와우! 어우 무서워. Minari is directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It is the story of a Korean family who have immigrated to the U.S. and their efforts to kind of get started living a sort of farm lifestyle as a way to acquire some more economic independence. It is partially autobiographical for Chung. It is kind of the story of his family in some ways that that he experienced as a child in the 80s. And in that sense, a lot of the press that I saw surrounding this movie before seeing it seemed to be centered around Stephen Yun's character and sort of the story of this father to an immigrant family and his struggle to provide for them and his per- performance was getting a lot of praise and he's actually the first Asian American actor to be nominated for best performance by an actor in a leading role which is fantastic for him and he absolutely deserves it it's a little bit shocking to me that this is really the first instance of that but he's completely deserving of that nomination and and that landmark i think it's better late than never i guess and i think it's great and appropriate that that benchmark is finally cleared in this story that that is so specific to i guess the korean american experience if I, I if i have any sort of ability to even attempt to speak to that but in a lot of ways it's not though it is it is a very universal story of family and what i was getting at with this idea that the movie seemed to be presented as the story of of Stephen Young's character i think as great as he is that did not feel like the heart of the film at all to me i think it in a lot of ways was centered around the relationship between this grandson and his grandmother and that was really fascinating to me because that's not a relationship that I think it's explored in movies a lot. I think most obviously a lot of movies are centered around romantic relationships, friendships, you will see movies about parent-child relationships whether they be positive or negative 
but this is a dynamic that I don't see explored a lot. And it's really interesting to see that relationship develop between two people who are so separated in terms of the differences in their age, in terms of the differences in the environment that they were raised in, but have this familial bond and have to kind of come to terms with one another and end up being more similar than they might have otherwise thought they were. And watching sort of that almost love story between those two characters develop was really the most beautiful part of this movie for me. But every character in the core family does get their fair share of screen time, I would say, and they do all exist as as three-dimensional, fully realized people. But that was just the part that stuck out to me the most. This movie takes place in Arkansas, but to be honest, I don't think it's really recognizable as anywhere. It's sort of this generic, almost idyllic landscape that is photographed so beautifully. I think the colors in this are absolutely extraordinary. The whole movie is just a joy to look at. It really kind of brings about this notion of the American dream in kind of a refreshed way where I think for someone like me who has kind of been pessimistic in in the last several years about what that means and what America really stands for, there's this notion that there still can be something positive to look for here and the story of people immigrating and even though they have to face a lot of hardship they're still able to find something positive out of the experience i think it really kind of speaks to a level of perseverance of the human spirit in a way that is not a totally unique narrative but i think is told in such a personal manner and told so beautifully that i really appreciated it and it is particularly relevant to that because as i mentioned it it takes place in the 80s during the reagan era there are even explicit mentions of ronald reagan and the effect that he's had on the economy there are a lot of details in this movie that are kind of just throwaway elements but that i think speak to a sort of environmental theme in terms of conservation there's a few insert shots of kind of smoke billowing out of buildings and there's mentions of water supplies diminishing which are in a more specific context but i think still evoke kind of this idea that this was the onset of the era of people not caring about the earth as much as they should and kind of the results of that and this prioritization of economic things that led to where we are now and and on that same note one of the things that i enjoyed about this was uh steven yun wearing a red hat in a way that didn't make me angry i think he he made those accessible again so i have a lot of love for this movie i would not put it on the same level necessarily as judas and the black messiah still in terms of if we're attempting to compare these but i think it's so difficult to compare because it's so different in scope and it's really a personal story about this family and told in a way that I segued into this by talking about kind of the different manner in which this deals with being trapped in a situation. And in this case, it's the economic constraints that this family has to deal with and the idea of taking out loans and how much they've invested into this property. But visually, this movie is such a breath of fresh air and it feels so free. You have all these 
wide shots of these beautiful landscapes and as i said it it kind of makes you feel optimistic about this country in a way that is difficult to do right now even though you know there are still moments of racial prejudice in this movie as there obviously would be there are still allusions to economic difficulties and and environmental issues as i mentioned but i thought this was overall a really optimistic look at the experience of immigration and and post-immigration and the experience of a family and just kind of the love story of a whole family and it is just a really i don't want to say comfort movie but it it does have a comforting effect it's very different from a lot of the other movies in that way that are in this nominee pool in that we're looking at a lot of really serious issues right now and i think that's amazing but it's also nice to have this in there and have it feel happy but not in a way that's dishonest it feels very genuine and not attempting to ignore issues but rather has a much more positive outlook which is ironic because in a sense that's sort of the issue that i had with the next movie on the list which is a movie that's been getting a ton of praise so i'm i'm actually really excited to dive into the places where i might disagree with some of that when it comes to chloe zhao's film nomadland Bo never knew his parents, and we never had kids. If I didn't stay, if I left, it would be like he never existed. I couldn't pack up and move on. He loved Empire. He loved his work so much. He loved being there. Everybody loved him. So I stayed. Same town, same house. It's like my dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. Nomadland is the story of a woman essentially deciding to start living out of her van, kind of becoming a modern-day nomad, and driving around with this community of other people who have made this decision. And I guess that's that's actually a key word that sort of... The, the idea of decision is is really where I have a problem with this. But before I get to that, I will say this movie is starring and I believe produced by Frances McDormand. She is amazing as she always is. I think her performance is outstanding and and definitely one of the strengths of this movie. I thought she was able to capture this sense of loneliness, but in a way that didn't strip her character of the ability to experience a full range of emotions. I think I was not expecting this movie to have much of a sense of humor, but her character was still very like funny and joyous and able to interact with people in all these different ways while still maintaining the sense of being lost in a way. And I think it's a very layered performance that is really exceptional. Where this movie sort of loses me is extending beyond that this is attempting to tell the story 
of these nomads and the sort of, as the movie puts it, they're houseless but not homeless. And the thing about that is that it presents poverty in this manner that I don't want to say makes it seem like a choice, but I do think to a certain degree sanitizes the hardships that that some of these people have faced and most of the actors in the movie are not really actors they are they are real people and a lot of them are sharing their real experiences and i'm i'm not at all trying to insinuate that those people are are being exploited for this i they're all aware it was a movie they all agreed to share their stories and i think that's amazing but this movie almost opens with francis mcdormand's character fern working in an Amazon packaging facility and my immediate instinct was that I was very surprised by that and I was like oh this is going to be very critical of Amazon but it it ended up not really saying anything about Amazon I won't say that it was a positive look at Amazon although she did praise their wages at one point which was a little bit strange but it did seem to kind of just walk away from that without really having any clearly defined viewpoint and that was strange to me because if the movie just wanted to tell this one personal story of this one woman's experience that's that's fine that's great I think it did a great job with that side of the movie I think Zhao really did a fantastic job highlighting this character's experience through the editing and through the pace of the movie and through just the beautiful landscape shots that she shows that just evoke this kind of sense of stillness amidst all this travel. But what the movie does is it keeps tiptoeing up to saying something about capitalism and then bailing out at the last minute. And it's very frustrating because I feel like it would be so easy for it to have a stance and then it just chooses not to. I read a review that described it as one too many deliberate choices to avoid politics of any kind. There's a point where a character undergoes surgery and there's no mention of healthcare. There's a point where Frances McDormand walks by a theater that's playing The Avengers and I was like, oh, this is going to say something about Disney. And then I remembered that Zhao was actually directing an upcoming Marvel movie. So as I said, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not criticizing the movie for not having an anti-capitalist sentiment to it, but it's very strange to me that it seems to be constantly circling the issue, but then choosing to avoid it. And that becomes even stranger when you read about the book that this is adapted from and how unabashedly anti-capitalist it is and how strong of a stance it takes in that regard. And so it really feels like the movie chose to dilute that and to ignore some of the more difficult aspects of this lifestyle and even ignore the injuries that people had in the Amazon workplace and a person who even died. And that was really disappointing for me. But again, I think on a personal level, if you were to restrict this to a character piece and specifically the character of Fern and her kind of journey and her inability to stay in one place and the way that she deals with grief after the loss of her husband, I think that aspect of the movie is executed extremely well, but just overall, it did not quite sit right with me. And I think particularly as we look at some of these movies that are nominated that are different from what the Academy normally chooses to recognize and the 
cultural relevance that they have in the way that they push these important conversations forward, I think this movie does the opposite in that it approaches those conversations but then avoids them. And so I did not really care for it for that reason. But I won't say I disliked it. I know a lot of people have a lot of love for this movie and I totally see why it just did not work for me because of that specific thing. The next movie, though, I will say I disliked because I had a much bigger issue with this one, and that is a movie that is also nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and it is Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell. I left because of what happened to Nina. Hmm. Nina Fisher. You don't remember her? Maybe you remember Alexander Monroe? Oh, yes, Alexander Monroe. He actually just came back and gave a talk here. Oh, he's a, he's a really nice guy, really smart. Are you a friend of his? No. So you don't remember the accusations made against Al Monroe? I don't. Before I get into Promising Young Woman, I should mention that this film's narrative and themes deal pretty heavily and explicitly in issues of sexual assault, so if that's something that you're uncomfortable with, I would recommend skipping this part. It's something that I'm going to be discussing pretty openly because that is in large part what the issues that I have with this movie have to deal with. So there's your warning about that, and I'm just going to dive into it. So this very much feels like the Academy nominated this movie as a way of saying, hey, the Me Too movement happened, we're acknowledging it. Because the lack of nuance in this movie's approach to sexual assault awareness is something that that bothers me for a couple different reasons. And the first thing is that I'm not going to say it's impossible to make a movie that approaches this topic from a very serious and empathetic angle and is also an entertaining movie, but I think that is an incredibly daunting task and one that this movie was just not up to the challenge of because it's trying so hard to say something meaningful about sexual assault, but also to be an entertaining movie, and I've seen a lot of people call it a revenge movie, and it ends up, as a result, really not succeeding at either one for me. And the biggest thing that I guess I would have to say about that is just it feels like there's really a lack of empathy for the survivors of sexual assault. It feels like it's used as a plot device in a lot of ways. It's like something to propel the narrative and the characters forward. And that's not to say that it doesn't really emphasize the tragedy of the situation and the monstrous nature of the people who perpetuate this culture and commit these acts, but it does it in a way where even the protagonist of the movie seems to kind of miss the point, despite the fact that all of her actions are motivated by this kind of hatred for this idea. The movie does a couple things that are really smart, like early on, where it starts off the opening title sequence, it's all these shots of, of men dancing in a manner that really kind of turns male gaze on its head and is depicting men and their bodies in a way that is 
normally characteristic of the way that a lot of movies will portray women and i thought that was really smart and i thought some of the casting decisions here were really brilliant taking a lot of comedic actors who are known for really affable characters who are generally considered really likable and using them to play these guys who think of themselves and project this character of the nice guy but are really these kind of insidious predators is a genius decision and it really takes advantage of the audience's expectations for these actors in a way to say like hey you don't know what a sexual predator looks like and there are different ways that people go about that and the way that they will try to use their perceived niceness was a a really i think a, a brilliant decision from a casting perspective and from a filmmaking perspective the thing with that is that it actually it sort of telegraphed the main twist of the movie which is bo burnham's character who i think is a very well-written part he's the the love interest for carrie mulligan's character cassie and is seemingly really the only true nice guy in the film and then of course at the end it turns out he had a role to play in the original assault that that led to her going down this path of, of seeking revenge on behalf of her friend who were led to believe committed suicide as a result of this assault that was committed against her and the fact that nothing was done about it but the fact that the movie set the expectation that oh all these seemingly nice guys will turn out to be bad that ultimate rug pull was kind of toothless because you're already expecting him him to be bad because he's charming but that's really not the overall issue here it's really the idea that sexual assault even for the characters who seemingly have empathy for it is used as as like a tool and kind of a narrative prop even cassie herself as a revenge against allison Bree's character for not believing her friend nina leads her to believe that she's been raped which is i don't know what the intent was behind that but it was not amusing nor did it elicit really sympathy for for her or for this process that she's going through to seek revenge on these people it it really felt like a strange choice that sort of undercut the movie's own message um whatever that message was supposed to be and I just really didn't care for that. And there are other moments like that. She leads another woman to believe that her daughter has been left alone with these young men and a bunch of alcohol and that she's in danger. And overall, like, I think the point that the movie fails to sufficiently address is that none of these decisions do anything to to help her friend or to help herself or to prevent these kinds of things from happening in the future it's really all just her inability to let go of it and there are characters who touch on that momentarily through dialogue but overall that point is really ignored and then at the end of the movie her character dies but then still manages to get the last word through mailing out all this evidence and at the end all the bad guys get arrested and it's really mixed messages because up until that point a big theme of the movie had been this lack of justice for victims but then at the end she gets the last word and all the bad people go away and the justice system did its job and it really just feels like this happy ending that you're you're glad they got a happy ending but it's also doesn't feel like the movie is really committing to its own thesis and it again just reinforces this impression that i got that 
it wasn't really about sexual assault. It was about this is our revenge narrative. Let's use this thing that is a known issue right now as the basis for that revenge narrative. And I just it really left a bad taste in my mouth after I finished the movie and during a lot of it. I also want to take a moment at the end of this one just really quickly to mention an organization that I think is really important called Explain the Asterisk. It's uh, something run by a friend of a friend that is attempting to change the policy on most university campuses where if someone is dismissed for committing an act of sexual assault, the only mark of that on their record is the same asterisk that you get for being dismissed on grounds of academic failure or there's no there's no explicit indication that someone is a sexual predator and it allows these people to resume their academic careers on another campus and potentially endanger more people. So I really recommend that you check out Explain the Asterisk, that you sign their petitions and that you donate money if you can, because that is something that we can take immediate actionable change on, and it's something that's important and directly relates to to college campuses, and, and I would really like for some more progress to be made on that front. Now, though, I'd like to move on to a movie that was equally difficult to watch, but for much different reasons, uh, a movie that I that I really, really enjoyed and had one of my favorite and one of the most praised performances of the year, which is Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal. Listen to me. Listen, listen, when you get there, I need you to... I need you to write to me, okay? Yeah, will you write me? Will you tell me you're okay? Huh? Promise me? And listen, if it's if it's bullshit, you just get your ass back here. I'll fix it. I swear to God, you know I'll fucking fix this. It's not that hard, okay? Just come back here. I love My you. fucking heart, okay? This is the story of a drummer in a metal band who loses his hearing pretty much overnight and kind of has to come to terms with his new state of being and his new lifestyle. It stars Riz Ahmed, who in in conjunction with, with Stephen Yeun's nomination as the first Asian American nominated for uh, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Riz is the first Muslim to receive a nomination for the same award. So, so uh, two kind of historic nominations in the same category this year. And I have to say that Riz's performance here is really, really extraordinary. This movie is sort of placed on his back, despite many of the other strengths that it has. And there are there are many, and I think it's really well-crafted overall. But the whole thing kind of hinges on him, and he 100% delivers. Watching his struggle to not only come to terms with his new condition but come to terms with his lack of control in general and his inability to kind of steer his life in the direction that he wants it to go is really emotionally impactful and something that ties into this theme that I keep coming back to which is this position that many of us have been put into a lesser extent than this character of this lack of control that we have over our lives and this sense of uneasiness that comes with that and this frustration over over not being able to do the things that you want to do and here it's represented beautifully especially through the sound design I think the choices of when to make the sound subjective to Riz's character Ruben and when to let us hear the full range of audio are 
pretty much perfect throughout the whole movie. I think we were placed in his head essentially for really extended periods of time, but not all the time. And it's done in a way that really lets us feel his frustration, but also maintain kind of a sense of the whole world that he's within. And over the course of the movie, he becomes a member of this deaf community and really in a lot of ways comes to accept this new way of being but is still unable to really let go of what he had before primarily because of of the central romantic relationship to the film which is another thing that's done in a way that is kind of unconventional and in a lot of ways this whole this whole narrative is structured very unconventionally in the way that it just moves from setting to setting without ever really going back in the way that time just kind of slips by and we like Ruben are sort of just left to have to come to terms with where we are now. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of The Place Beyond the Pines, the the Derek Sion France movie, and then I saw Sion France's name in the in the credits as a producer, and it turns out that Martyr and him actually have a long-standing working relationship, and this project was originally a Sion France movie that he asked Martyr to rework, so that that made a lot of sense, and I you can absolutely see that influence here and. I think it works very well with this story. Ruben's kind of journey through all these different stages of his life, but his continuous inability to really find a moment of true peace and stillness until the very end when he finally takes the implants out and kind of just allows everything to be silent. Everything to that point in the movie allows this one moment of real silence to just hit as hard as any sound possibly could. The last moments of this movie are so beautiful in a way that is really not cliche at all and really just drives home the entire thing and makes you feel like even though this character is in yet another really difficult position in terms of where he's at in his life, he's going to be okay finally because he's able to find peace and comes to terms with where he's at. What's really impressive about this too is is I believe this is Martyr's first film, at least his first feature-length film that he's directed, and he demonstrates such a mastery over kind of the entire toolbox and really is able to utilize every aspect of the editing and the sound design and the cinematography to work cohesively to deliver the same tonal and emotional impact and deliver it in a way that is both subjective to the character but speaks to these larger ideas that I think are personally relevant for a lot of people right now. And it's particularly impressive because this was done on, I think, a relatively low budget, and they shot this on 35mm film, so they, they didn't have a lot of takes to work with because film is expensive. So it's, I, I think it's just such a huge achievement in directing, and again, Rizamet's performance just really blew me away. I think it's the best of his career that I've seen. This is one of those movies that I just think everybody really has to see. I'm still pulling for for Judas and the Black Messiah to take the award, and I think it probably will, but if it went to Sound of Metal, I would not be disappointed. I think this is such a beautifully crafted movie, and it's another one that I think is going to hold up really well over the years to come. This story is effectively timeless, and there are so many just small moments that really stand out one of the ones that really got me was towards the very beginning of the movie 
when Ruben and his girlfriend Lou, played by Olivia Cook, who's also great, are dancing in their in their sort of trailer home, and the music that they listen to is so different from the music that they play, and they're kind of experiencing this moment of closeness that is driven by the sound, but also just a result of their connection to one another, and the depiction of kind of a codependent relationship that ultimately does in many ways make both of them healthier but also makes them too dependent on one another is is really just it's such a it's such a unique relationship for a movie and both actors play their parts so well i think the way that that relationship wraps up where they just kind of come to terms with the fact that they're in different places in their lives right now and they're so appreciative of one another but they just it's not practical anymore i think is it's so heartbreaking but in a way where it it still feels like the right decision for them and that's again something that i i haven't really seen executed in this way before i guess that's sort of the narrative to casablanca which but it's very different here because the stakes are a lot lower it's much more personal and this is another movie that does a great job exploring these themes that I think are relevant to most of us right now but through this incredibly personal story that really puts you in this one character's head in more ways than one and I have really nothing but praise for it I think it's a phenomenal film and that brings us to our last film which could not be less about any one particular character but does address a lot of the same things that some of these other movies do, particularly Judas and the Black Messiah, and that is Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago 7. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Trial of the Chicago 7 takes place in the same city and time period as Judas and the Black Messiah, so those movies are definitely linked in a lot of ways. Fred Hampton even appears as a character in this film, but it is less so much a story surrounding the struggle of black people in America and more to do with the idea of protest in general and the social changes and the political changes that took place during this particular time in American history. You could definitely make the argument that black voices should have played a larger role in this movie, but I think that this is probably for Aaron Sorkin the best way that he could have gone approaching this, and I think that's evident in more ways than one. His particular writing style that I'm, I'm sure people are familiar with is so well suited to a courtroom drama that it's a shock to me that he hasn't made something like this before. I know uh, he did A Few Good Men, but this just extended tri trial sequence 
that occupies almost the entire movie the sheer number of characters in this that dialogue just bounces back and forth between the way it is so clever but so politically incisive it's some of the best writing that he's ever done i think and he does a surprisingly good job of maintaining each character's individualism despite the fact that he does have a tendency to write everybody with a certain level of sorkinism that there can be some similarities in the way that people speak in that they they have mannerisms that real people just don't have but i've seen criticism of this film's direction in that he's a better writer than he is a director and i will say it didn't necessarily blow me away in that front but i didn't i didn't have any issues with it i thought it moved along really well i think it's a it's a long movie but it i never got bored at any point it just kept on moving um and as I mentioned, it takes place almost entirely in the courtroom or between days of the trial with these characters just trying to sort out their own legal strategy. There are a few flashback sequences to the particular days of the protests that eventually became riots after the police violence that took place. Those are some of, obviously, the the bigger moments in the movie. But for the most part, it's very contained and it's very dialogue heavy, which is to be expected. But it still manages to kind of pack an emotional punch, even if most of that emotion is just frustration at the injustice that's taking place. My favorite performance in this movie is by Frank Langella, who plays the judge presiding over, over this trial, who is completely corrupt and despicable but depicted with such a degree of of fluency that I think he's such an underrated actor, despite he's obviously had a, had a great deal of success. But the performance in this that's definitely getting the most press right now is Sasha Baron Cohen playing Abby Hoffman, obviously a notable figure in the anti-war protests at the time. I should mention specifically this is surrounding the... 1968 Democratic National Convention and and the protests that took place there. I thought Sasha Baron Cohen is obviously very funny. I thought he did a great job. He wasn't necessarily as believable to me as some of of the other characters. And I I should also mention uh, Jeremy Strong, who plays Jerry Rubin, who's sort of his partner slash sidekick is hilarious in this. This is obviously a very political film. It's something that, again, has a lot of relevance to recent protests and social movements that have been taking place in America. It's something that I think will unfortunately be compared to Judas and the Black Messiah in some ways, just because there's so much common ground in the time period and some of the characters even in in some of the events that take place. But I really think they should be viewed kind of in conjunction as as sort of two different stories within the same frame and and different perspectives that are both valuable and i think judas and the black messiah probably deserves a little bit more attention not just because that's a perspective that we don't get to see as often but also because i think the way that it's crafted is is a lot more personal but this movie i really enjoyed as well i think it's something that is definitely going to be recognized to some degree at at the awards. I would not at all be surprised if, if Sorkin got another screenwriting award. This is a really good note to end on because it is 
probably the most overtly political of the movies that are in this batch. And I think as we kind of look back on what these have all covered, you know, you have movies like The Father that that don't really delve into that territory so much, but it's pretty clear that the Academy was trying to send a message this year of caring about certain issues and trying to look at things through less of their traditional lens of kind of turning a blind eye to certain issues. You know, I was talking about Franklin Jella. He played Richard Nixon at one point. The year that Rocky won Best Picture was the same year that All the President's Men was nominated, as was Network, which I'm pretty sure is Aaron Sorkin's favorite movie. And and both of those take kind of a more pessimistic look at the American dream and and Rocky is the very much you can do it movie uh things will work out it's interesting I think that in my opinion you know all the president's men is is one of my favorite movies ever made and I think it's so well crafted and and manages to be entertaining while taking this incisive look at Watergate and the way that government corruption can work and the way these scandals can be covered up. The Academy chose to recognize the more positive look at America, and that wasn't necessarily an overt political statement, but it is the choice that they made. And it's looking like this year they're hopefully trying to shift in a different direction, where even the movies like Minari that that I said are a more positive look at America or the American dream don't just kind of ignore those issues and you know we saw that last year to some extent too with Parasite's big win as the first foreign film to win best picture Hollywood is starting to take a more multicultural approach and an approach that is more interested in social equity and hopefully we'll continue to see a trend in that direction I know a lot of people accuse them of performative activism but I think at the end of the day, really the only issue that matters here is is representation and what is getting recognition. So if their motives behind that are just to try to look socially conscious, I don't I don't really care because the impact is the same. All in all, I think even casting aside those themes, this is a surprisingly strong batch of films for the conditions that the film industry was under this last year. I was really impressed with some of them in particular, and I'm hoping that we'll see even more opportunities for BIPOC filmmakers with success of things like Judas and the Black Messiah. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm, it is my favorite, and I think it, it's hopefully going to win. I think it honestly stands a really good chance. But even aside from that, I'm just, I'm really impressed with the state of filmmaking right now comparing art and giving it awards is sort of meaningless in a lot of ways but this is to a certain degree representative of where the industry and the art form is at right now and I think despite some some definite issues that I had with some of these movies I think we're in a good place and I'm really excited for what the next few years are going to bring I'm really excited to see what next year's pool of nominees looks like and hopefully things will only continue to improve in terms of both representation and in terms of the inventiveness of the cinematic devices that people are using in terms of the inventiveness of the storytelling 
I encourage you to check out all these films, even the ones that I really didn't care for, just because you might not agree with me. And even if you do, it's sometimes interesting to look at things that you don't like and figure out why you don't like them and how they could be done better. Well, this was not a series. It in some ways feels like it. I did watch them all pretty close together in the spirit of this show and i recommend that you check everything out so i hope everybody has a great day and watch some movies Such a thoughtful look into the Best Picture nominees of this year's Oscars. Yeah, absolutely. Ben's episode also won Best in Competition at the prestigious Michael S. Roif Awards this year. So deserved. Congrats to Ben on winning this award and on graduating. Hope you all enjoyed this special episode. The U Masterclass podcast is written and produced by students in the Film Studies program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Created by Christian Buckley in 2020, our intro and outro music is composed and performed by Corey Shia. Podcast art designed by me, Jackie Celestino. For you, Masterclass, I'm Jackie Celestino. And I'm Emily Coe. Thanks for tuning in. 